Covenant team, we appreciate you leading us this morning, a time of worship. I do want to thank my family members who are here today. It's uh, appreciate the support and encouragement. Glenn, again, thank you for the role that you play in our association and certainly for your friendship and for what you've done today. And, and then thank you for the Rock Community Church and the opportunity that you've given Cynthia and I, I think I've expressed in the past, and I want to keep expressing it, that we just appreciate so much this opportunity that you've given us and count it a a tremendous privilege. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter, well, let's start in John chapter 1, but we're not going to remain there very long. In fact, what I'm going to propose because of time today, let's forego the review and jump right to John chapter 2. This morning I want to focus on the first 11 verses. Three days after interacting with Nathaniel, we find Jesus and these five disciples responding to an invitation to come to a wedding. And here we see Jesus actually responding to a, a wedding faux pas. And we'll explain that later. In a way that reveals his glory and inspires faith. And that's what we want to consider this morning. So if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read uh, from God's Word. And we'll begin at John chapter 1, verse 43, and read through to the end of chapter 2, verse 11. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water 
pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. Father in heaven, you were there in the very beginning and you continue to sustain us. Your word informs us that you hold our very breath in your hand. Thank you for life, and not just for this life, but life beyond the grave. Thank you, too, for this book, a written revelation of your person, your plans, and your purposes, apart from which we would have no idea, not a clue. But with it, we have the opportunity to learn about you and how we can respond appropriately to your demonstration of love for us. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Father, help each one of us to cross over from death to life. The words of the psalmist, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Give us ears that hear, eyes that see, hearts that fear you, and wills that are determined to obey. By your spirit and for your glory we pray. Amen. Seeing him for who he is through what he did enables us to believe him. Seeing him for who he is through what he was able to do enables us to believe in him. Sometimes, while celebrating the good things God has provided for our enjoyment, needs arise. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? 
My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So Jesus, while attending this wedding at Cana with his disciples, was informed by his mother that they had run out of wine. Now, I'm sure that we will all agree that weddings are an example of a good thing that God has provided for our enjoyment. Who doesn't enjoy a wedding? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So marriage was God's idea. It was designed to be between a man and a woman, regardless of what our culture may be promoting. This is a divine institution that is intended to last for a lifetime. It is to be established based on a covenant made before God. That's God's design. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, it reads, He who finds a wife finds a good thing, a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. God celebrates and supports marriage as he designed it. And here we have Jesus' involvement at a wedding in Cana, which affirms, like God dressed in human flesh, attending a wedding, affirms this institution. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul, writing later, warns a young pastor with these words. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who... Forbid marriage. The Apostle Paul envisioned a a day and a time when this sacred institution, established and designed by God, would come under attack. And that was some 2,000 years ago. Interesting. Let me be clear. From God's perspective, marriage, as he designed it, is a good thing. An essential thing provided for our well-being and for our enjoyment. Now, in Jesus' day, wine played in just an indispensable part in the wedding ceremony. These weddings are not our weddings. They're not like what we experience today. And so listen as I read a description as provided by Ken Hughes. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a huge feast. After the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torchlight parade, complete with a canopy held over their heads. They are always taken along the most circuitous route possible so that everyone would have an opportunity to wish them well instead of a honeymoon 
They had an open house for something that would last up to a week. They were considered to be king and queen and actually wore crowns and and dressed in royal robes. Their word was considered to be the law. In that light, often contained in in this life that they were experiencing, it often contained much poverty and difficulty. This was considered a supreme occasion. And understand that when the Jews reflected on on heaven or the arrival of the Messiah, what that would be like, this is the image that would come to mind. The wedding banquet. And for Jewish weddings, the wine symbolizes the joy and celebration. In fact, rabbis in this day had a familiar saying, without wine, there is no joy. So to run out of wine would be a major social faux pas. And not only that, not only would it be a major embarrassment, but it held some implications for the groom as well. Listen as I read this from this New Testament scholar. Wedding celebrations could last as long as a week, and the financial responsibility for the wedding, it actually resided with the groom. Remember, the betrothal period is about a year long. He announces the engagement, and it's like being married, but it takes them an entire year to build a house and save this money, proving that he'll be able to look after his new bride. To run out of supplies, this writer writes, would be a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture. And there is some evidence, this is the part I find interesting, that it could also lay the groom open to a lawsuit from the aggrieved relatives of the bride. Oh my, can you imagine? What a start. Running out of wine was threatening to become the defining moment of this young couple's life. A major social faux pas that would have been very difficult from which to recover. But Jesus' mother comes to the rescue. She somehow learned of the wine shortage and informed Jesus. And and maybe she was a, a fixer by nature. You know, one of those people that just could sniff out a problem before it developed. Or people that need rescuing. Or maybe a stray cat that needed a new home. We could go on and on. To be fair, Jesus' mother was not telling him what to do. She merely, she was merely making him aware that they had a problem. And as we look at chapter, or verse five of this, where his mother says, whatever he says to you, do it. Some have suggested that, that what she's doing there is expressing her expectation that Jesus was going to look after this need. I'll talk to that in a few moments, but certainly it's not suggesting that his mother expected a miracle. There's just no way that she would ever expect that. And it's interesting that Joseph, her husband, has neither been seen nor heard from, from Luke Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52 onward. And at that time, Jesus was 12 years old. And now he's 30. 
So it seems reasonable to conclude that sometime in that period, Joseph has died. Mary is a widow, and she was leaning on her firstborn for some male leadership in their home, which was very typical in that culture. And so she informed him of the looming crisis. They have no wine. Let me quickly add that Jesus' response was neither rude nor disrespectful. It was neither rude nor disrespectful. He was, however, being abrupt and firm. Our youngest son met and married a southern belle from South Carolina. And in that culture, he might respond to his mother-in-law, Ma'am, what to me and to you, if he was to translate this literally? Ma'am, what to me, what to me and to you? In other words, what do you and I share in common concerning this shortage of wine? That's what Jesus is asking. So Jesus, right from the beginning of his public ministry, is defining a new relational boundary between his mom and what he was supposed to. No longer will she be calling the shots. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. From now on, things are going to be different. Jesus makes it an issue of timing. Notice, my hour has not yet come. The Greek translation word hour or some other translations use time, so my time has not yet come. This becomes one of the Apostle John's favorite words in his gospel account. We find it in John chapter 5, verse 25 and verse 28. Again in chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 23 and verse 27. Chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 16, verses 25 and 32. This hour, Warren Worsby explains, Jesus lived on a heavenly timetable marked out for him by his heavenly father, not by Mary, his mother. Can you see Jesus' mother shrinking back? Eyebrows raised, forehead wrinkled. She glances at others and slowly backs away. As I mentioned earlier, some would suggest that her comments to the servants suggest that she was expecting Jesus to do something. Maybe. Or maybe that was just the saving face comment of a mom in full retreat. Certainly in her wildest dreams, she could have never expected what happened next. But maybe there's a lesson here for you and for me. You see, God responds to our needs according to his plans and purposes. And God knows our needs before we ever ask. But he still wants us to ask. A synopsis of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount is preserved for us in Matthew 6, 5, 6, and 7. 
In chapter 6, just prior to what we have come to refer to as that famous Lord's Prayer, let me read the words beginning at verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. He knows our needs but we still ask for his daily provision. He still wants us to ask. And we ask knowing that he is faithful. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is a faithful God. But that does not obligate him to meet every one of our needs. Remember the Apostle Paul, just for example, that thorn in the flesh described in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given this thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me And keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged. I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Sometimes it's to keep us humble. So that we're dependent on God and other people. Sometimes it's discipline. God attempting to bring us back, get us on track. Eventually, it will be to bring us home to heaven. Regardless, we are to pray and trust God. Trust that he will meet our needs according to his plans and purposes. Someone has said, God does not just give us what we want. He gives us everything we would want if we knew everything he knows. Let me read that again. God does not just give us what we want. He gives us everything we would want if we knew everything he knows. Here's a verse that I would encourage all of us to commit to memory. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Like Jesus' mother, we can express our needs 
in prayer. But then we trust God to meet those needs in keeping with his plans and purposes. We trust him. And our agenda is not always his agenda. Here in John chapter 2, Jesus is now operating according to the Heavenly Father's timetable marked out for him. Seeing him for who he is through what he was able to do enables us to believe in him. God's provisions can stimulate faith. Let's read verses 6 to 11. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it had came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus revealed his glory and stimulated belief in his disciples by turning water into wine. The water that was turned into wine was provided in abundance, and it was of superior quality. And I'm not sure when it happened, but but somewhere between the filling of those six stone water pots in verse 7 and the head waiter's taste test in verse 9, a miracle took place. The water had become wine, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of fresh new wine. From they have no wine, to more wine than they could possibly drink, I hope. And notice the head waiter's assessment of the wine in verse 10. Every man serves the good wine first. You have kept the good wine until now. We might say something like, go big or go home. Jesus went big. He not only met the need, he provided above and beyond and of superior quality. Both in quantity and quality, Jesus surpassed expectations. Did you notice that the Apostle John refers to this display of supernatural power as a sign? Not a miracle, but a sign. In fact, John reports seven signs in this gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Here in chapter 2, we see water being transformed into wine. Chapter 4, the healing of a royal official's son who's on his deathbed. Chapter 5, the healing of a paralytic. Chapter 6, the feeding of 5,000 people. And then later in that chapter, he he actually walks on water. Chapter 9, the healing of the man born blind from birth. In chapter 11, Lazarus is raised 
from the dead. Think of road signs. They are there to provide us with information so that we can make informed decisions as we drive along. The Apostle John is using the word sign to signal something here. Signal to his readers that there is a deeper meaning here. Something rather than just a raw display of supernatural power. This sign is intended to communicate a message. Something about Jesus that we didn't know. I would like to suggest there are at least three levels of meaning here. Meaning to the message in the miracle. In verse 11, it talks about a manifestation or a revelation of his glory. The first level is that Jesus has access to supernatural power. How can you argue that? It's undeniable. Water became wine according to independent eyewitnesses. That communicates something about Jesus' true identity. What are you going to do with that? You have, I think, three choices. You're either going to believe it, deny it, or dismiss it. But you have to make a decision. The second level of manifestation of his glory is his willingness to meet immediate, visible, contemporary, practical needs. Jesus loved people. He is compassionate, caring, and able. The third message in the miracle is seen in Jesus' transformation of these significant religious symbols of Judaism. I don't think it's an accident that that John goes on to say six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Those kinds of details are there for a reason. Turn back with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 and beginning right at the very first verse. This will help us understand the significance of these water pots. The Pharisees, these are the religious elite of the day, remember. The Pharisees and some scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. That doesn't mean with soap and water. That means ceremonially unclean. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they carefully washed their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So these stone pots are filled with water to go through all this ritual hand washing. And Jesus takes those, they're filled to the brim with water, and he turns it into wine, making them useless for this hand washing ceremony. So Jesus is actually transforming this Jewish religious system 
Later, he will say that you cannot put new wine into old wineskins, clearly indicating that there is a new sheriff, well, maybe not a new sheriff in town, but there's certainly a new sign that's pointing to the one in whom we can place our faith, not religious performances, not based on ethnicity, not in any symbols or traditions or anything else that we might come up with in order to believe somehow we're gaining favor with God. Jesus said it plainly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know what? His disciples got that message. Because look at verse 11. And the disciples believed in him. Seeing him for who he is through what he was able to do enables us to believe in him. God does provide faith stimuli. God's desire is that you and I, every one of us, have this kind of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 reads, And without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Life's troubles, those difficulties that we find ourselves in, they can be those faith stimuli. James chapter 1 verses 2 to 4 reads, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, needing nothing. But faith stimuli, they can take time to develop. I remember back when I was... In Bible college, I'd finished two years and was heading into my third year and just thought, oh, wow, this is taking way too long. I need to get out there, get to work. I've had enough of this academy stuff. And I remember the, our resident director, a guy by the name of Brad Julin, gave me a book on spiritual growth. And one of the chapters started off with an illustration that I've never forgotten. went something like this. When God wants to grow a mighty oak tree... He takes a hundred years. When he wants to grow a squash, he takes but six months. Which do you want to be? A mighty oak or a squash? (laughs) I finished my degree. (laughs) Grow in your faith. Grow in your faith. Jesus acknowledged that there are degrees of faith. Not everybody's faith is on the same level. Speaking to his disciples, he replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds, the waves. It was completely calm. Later, these same disciples have now been appointed as apostles. They came and said to Jesus, Increase our faith. That would be a good place for you and I to begin. Father, increase our faith.
was reading this past week and came across a cute illustration. A wife was writing about her husband by the name of Ron. And Ron once taught a class of teenagers with mental challenges and looking at his students' capability rather than their limitations. Ron got them to play chess, restore furniture, and fix small appliances, small electric appliances. The most important thing he taught them was to have belief in, in themselves, what they could, could actually do. Young Bobby soon proved how well he had learned that last lesson. One day he brought a broken toaster to repair. He arrived carrying the toaster under one arm. In the other arm, he had half a loaf of bread. (laughs) Right? Listen, I'm not interested in getting us to believe in ourselves. But I am desperately interested in getting us to place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Knowing that He can accomplish just amazing things in and through us. Make it your prayer. Pray with me. Increase our faith. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 makes it crystal clear that that kind of faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You and I, we we cannot suffer overexposure from this book. It just doesn't happen. Read it. Listen to it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Obey it. In this book, we have had everything that we need. Everything for faith and godliness. And we've heard 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Read at least, at least twice this morning. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's all that we need. Everything that we need is found in this book in order to live a, a fulfilling and life that pleases God. But let me also mention a caution just before we leave this section of scripture especially in light of this whole idea of a sign that we've been considering this morning. Seeking supernatural experiences will only serve to make us vulnerable. And that's the kind of culture that we live in. Whether it be water into wine, physical healings or speaking in some kind of unknown language, Jesus warns us there are ravenous wolves who are dressed in sheep's clothing looking to devour God's people. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. They will take advantage of us. They will lead us astray and they will deceive us. Be careful. Be wise. Stick with this book. And I agree, it may not be exciting 100% of the time. But I'll tell you, it's 100% reliable.
In closing, I find it interesting that of all the people who knew what had taken place, that, that there was no wine. They have no wine. It is only the disciples, only the disciples who believed in him. Those who were here last week remember me referring to the Jacob story found in Genesis chapter 28. The reason we went there is because of the last verse in John chapter 1 where Jesus is promising that they would see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Remember that? And so we went back to Genesis chapter 8 to the story that he's referring to. And Jacob is Esau's younger brother. And you'll remember that Jacob stole the blessing that Esau was supposed to get. It was rightfully his. And he stole it by an act of deception. And then he's running for his life. Because he's afraid that Esau is going to kill him. And as he runs, he runs out of daylight, decides to lay down, and he uses a stone for a pillow. He falls asleep and he has a dream. In the dream, he sees a staircase that goes up to heaven and God's standing at the top of the staircase and the angels are going up and down. The verse that caught my attention in Genesis chapter 28 was the last verse. Verse 16. When Jacob woke up, he said this, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. I made the comment last week, how sad is that? And I find myself There again this week. How sad for the head waiter, the groom, even Jesus' mother, the wedding guests, the village of Cana. Indeed, how sad for you and I now that we have been exposed to this eyewitness account. I trust that Jacob's confession will not become ours. The Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Seeing Jesus for who he is through what he was able to do enables us to believe in him as the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him, we might have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this word to us today. Help us not just to listen to it, but to do what it says. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. As James says, but if we look carefully into the perfect law that sets us free, 
And if we do what it says and don't forget what we heard, then God's blessing will be ours. May that become our testimony today. By your spirit and for your glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.